I'm thankful for the fact that God sovereignly saves, and I didn't have to work for it, you didn't have to work for it, and that we can now join together to worship Him on the Lord's Day because of that. That is a true blessing. This morning we look to God's Word to help us in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you would open to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we've been looking at the wisdom of Solomon here, King Solomon, who lived a long life. He started out very wise. God blessed him with wisdom. He turned away from the Lord for a time. He went into his own idolatry and sin. And I believe the Lord brought him back late in life, and he wrote this book. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book is to help others like us understand what life is all about. Why are we here? What's our purpose? What should we be doing with our time? What's left over when we're gone? What was our life really for? What was it about? Those are the questions that we've been dealing with. And he mentions a series of events that happened in his own life. Then later he mentions some things he's observed in other people's lives. And now we're to that part in the book in the middle here. Started in chapter 6, but today it goes into chapter 7 where... He's giving practical advice. No more just questions without any answers. He's not continuing to tell us the bad things that he's seen, but he's being more straightforward. He's being more direct. He's telling us the way things are and sometimes the way things should be if we are doing what we should be doing in our own lives. Today we're looking at chapter 7, 1 through 14, verses 1 through 14. I've entitled the sermon, What is Good for Man? Let me read this to you. And I'll be reading the NASB, but I've made a few changes. Most of these changes are in the footnotes, if you have a NASB with footnotes. Verse 1, a good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. While the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man. Than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot. So is the laughter of the fool. And this too is Havel, for oppression turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? And the day of prosperity be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. This passage tells us what is good for man. What is good for a person. 
particularly what is good for the person who follows God, the believer. What's best for us? How should we live? How should we act? How should we go about our everyday lives? Now, it's interesting to contrast what we find here with what the world says is best for us. I thought I would do a little search on Google this morning and just type in, what's best for me? I know it's dangerous. I know. The first website that they suggested, the one they thought matched that phrase the best, was one on the inner self. Here's what the page said. The big question is still, with all this information overload we have, how can I figure out what's best for me? Interestingly enough, I have discovered, after years of inner work and years of counseling other people, that there is actually a way, a way to know what's best for you and what's best for me in every situation. And I found out that the answers have been there all along because they're inside of us, she says. Not outside of us. That would be the scriptures. But this author, this lady says they are inside of us. All the answers are inside of us, she says. And our emotions are the key to finding those answers. She goes on to promote her new book called Find and Follow Your Inner Compass. Find and Follow Your Inner Compass which is supposed to help you, she says, find the guidance you are seeking to guide yourself towards the happiness you seek. This is the way that the world thinks. What's best for me is my happiness, getting my emotions the way I want them, having the right emotions so somebody has to do something to help me and I can be happy. Or I've got to get what I want so I can be happy. This is how the world goes about figuring out what's best for a person. And they hire these coaches, these life coaches, And they will tell you what you need to do to find true contentment, happiness, joy. Well, the Bible tells the believer how to find true contentment, happiness, and joy. The Bible tells us about emotions. The Bible tells us what's good for us. God doesn't save a person and say, I'll see you when you get to heaven. Don't worry about anything else. Just have a good life. He gave us the whole Bible so that we can learn so we can grow, so we can live in this life. Most of us will live long after the moment that we are justified in Christ. And so how should we live? Well, Solomon's been talking about this. And if you'll recall, go back to the end of chapter 6 here. He asked this question in chapter 6 that we looked at last week. 6.12, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his Havel, his short, his transitory life. Who knows what's good? What should we do with our time? What is a good thing for us to do? And what's a waste? What's foolish? And he uses that word good there. He's used it before in Ecclesiastes, but it's a common word in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word tov. You may have heard Jews use the term mazel tov, which means good luck or good fortune. And it carries the idea of congratulations. So they'll say mazel tov to celebrate some event. The word tov means good. And in our passage today, 7 verses 1 through 14, this word tov comes up 11 times. So he's definitely answering the question that he posed at the end of chapter 6. And you probably don't see it in the the English translation because sometimes it's just good. Other times it's the word better. And you'll see better a lot through this section. And other times it's the word happy. Those are all the Hebrew word tov. So he's tying this section back to the end of chapter 6. What's good for man and who even knows what's good for man? Well, the idea is that God knows and God's going to tell us right here through what Solomon wrote. God knows what's good for us. 
We don't know what's good for ourselves. And so God is going to tell us. And Solomon gives us what's good for us through the inspiration of God, of course, in 14 verses that are Proverbs. A proverb is a short, pithy statement. It's poetic because the author has worked on making it very short. He's taken out words. It's not an explanation. It's not an exposition. It's a very short statement that gives us a general truth or a piece of advice. And they're so pithy, they're so short sometimes that that people debate what they mean. Even all the commentaries on some of these go back and forth. It can mean these four different things because words are left out. And you really have to look at the context to figure it out. Now, 1 Kings tells us that Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs. About 800 are in the book of Proverbs. And there's probably 100 maybe in Ecclesiastes. And the rest we don't have today. God didn't see fit to include them in Scripture. But don't think because Ecclesiastes is not the book of Proverbs that there's not Proverbs there. We see that in most translations. This is set off in poetic verse. So what is he telling us with these Proverbs? Well, he's giving us five answers. Five answers to the question, what is good for man? Don't you want to know what's good for you? You know, the doctor tells us what's good for us and and commercials tell us what's good for us. And sometimes we ignore all of that and just do what we want. Well, the Christian can ignore what God says is good and do what we want. And what do you think is going to happen with our lives? Frustration, stress, anger, all the things that he mentions here in the passage. So what does he say is good for man? Well, he's going to give us five answers. He does this so that by applying these answers to our lives, we might know what a life lived in the fear of God is like. He's talked about the fear of God. He'll end the whole book on the fear of God. The main thing he wants to get across is we can't figure all this stuff out. It's frustrating. We have a short life. Just stop trying to fix everything and fear God and obey his commandments. Truly love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength with a zealous passion. Fear him because he is the almighty God and obey his commandments. So if we do these things, then we'll understand what it's like to live a life in the fear of the Lord. The very first one. The answer that he gives us first is, it is good to consider that death is coming. It's good to consider that death is coming. Now, there's a fascination with death in our culture today. It's almost a culture of death. You have babies being killed before they are even born, and you have the elderly being killed to make room and to save money in many countries of the world. And you have all kinds of death and murder in between, and whole Really, societies of people that love to talk about death, think about death, make movies about death. But he's not telling us here that that death is a good thing to consider just for the fun of it, just for entertainment value. He's telling us that death is good to consider because you're going to die too. You're going to die too. And there's a lot you can learn by reflecting on that fact. There's a lot. In our culture today, we... We push death off. Somebody else will take care of it. The hospital oversees the death process often. The funeral home takes care of all the arrangements. We have very little contact with dead bodies. But in Solomon's day, it was much different. He says, first of all, in verse 1, a good name is better than a good ointment. A good name means a good reputation. It's important to have a good reputation. An honorable reputation. What the New Testament says that an elder should have is a name that's above reproach. They should be above reproach. 
Every Christian man or woman should be above reproach. And he says that's better than a good ointment. There's a lot of uses for ointment in ancient times. It was a perfumed oil. Literally here it's just oil. And people would use it for various reasons in the ancient Near East. But because he's talking about death here, this must be the the perfumed ointment they would put on the dead body. You remember the women who went to the tomb to put spices and ointment on Jesus' body. Of course, they found that he wasn't there. That's what they did with a dead body. They put a perfumed oil on there so that the body would smell better. So that it was more tolerable. And with this first line here, he's saying, it's better to have a good reputation based on your good character than it is to have a sweet-smelling body at your deathbed. So what if you're so wealthy you can buy all these great things to put on your body at death? It's more important that you have a good name at death. It's more important that you have a good reputation. That people remember you for your reputation than how wonderful your funeral is. You don't want people to go away and say, just that was a great funeral. You want people to go away saying, that was a good man. That was a good woman. That was a godly person. Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. It's better to have lived and died above reproach as a Christian than it is to have this lavish funeral service. And he continues now. This is the more shocking one here, the part of this verse. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, he's been shocking us a lot in Proverbs. He even said earlier that it's better to not have been born if life is going to be a certain way. Now, he says that the day of one's death is better. How could that be? Proverbs are meant to think about. A lot of people read this and they just reject it. They say, well, he's, he's contradicting Proverbs. This can't even be Solomon. This can't even be inspired by God. There's all these contradictions. I thought life was good. We should protect life and we should. Now he's saying death is better. Let's think about it. Proverbs are meant to, to mull over it, to give it consideration, to put all of Scripture together. He's saying here, look, when people are born, they get a name. The parents give the baby a name. But we really don't know much about that person. They look like their parents, we might say. Maybe they have red hair or black hair. They cry a lot. That's about it. They eat a lot. They have to have diapers changed a lot. What else can you say about a child who's just come into the world? But at a person's death, if they've lived, let's say, a a long life, there's much to say about them. There are many things that people know suddenly about that person that they didn't know at their birth. And if you've known the person your whole life, it wouldn't even be sudden that you hear these things. Like at their funeral, you would know them throughout their life. In other words, he's saying a person's character can only be established at death. Because that's the final say. That's it. The final say as far as under the sun in this life. The person, once they've died, can't add or subtract anymore from their reputation. Once they're in the grave, the final evaluation is there for all to see. You might recall a famous name, Rabbi Zacharias, a man who was well known, a man who was looked up to in Christianity. After his death, much came out about his sinful lifestyle, about how he abused women, how he went into places and was with women that he shouldn't have been with. And it's so bad, and it's so Uh, True that they've confirmed it all, his own ministry, and the ministry has folded. There is no more Rabbi Zacharias ministry. 
that is the case where a man's reputation came out and was fully known after his death. And Solomon's saying, make sure that's not you. Make sure that people have good things to say about you at your death. Not just because they're trying to be nice, but because that's all they know. They can't drag out this long list of sins that you continued doing your whole life. Verse 2, he continues, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Look, funerals are not as fun as weddings. They're not as fun as baby showers. Not that I've been to a lot of baby showers, but I hear they're a lot of fun. Birthday parties, they're not as fun as birthday parties. Funerals are not always fun. But Solomon says there's something to learn from a funeral. It's a place to think soberly, he says. It's a, it's a house of mourning. It's a place to think about death. To think soberly about how short life is. It's not like we're going to live forever. I know that's what the culture says, the songs say, the movies sometimes portray. But Solomon says it's better to actually be in mourning than just to celebrate and feast and have a great time all your life. Commentator David Gibson says, People think in life, party as hard as we can, laugh as loud and as often as possible, drink ourselves into oblivion, live in the past or a land of make-believe instead of the present. That's the route of escapism. If you don't ever go to funerals, you don't ever deal with death, you don't ever think about it, or you go to a funeral and get out as fast as you can because it makes you sad and you don't want to be sad and life is all about your emotions, right? That's escapism. I want to escape from reality. I don't want to think about death. And he says it's better actually to think about it. It's a good thing. Because that's the end of every man. That's where we're all going. The stats are in. 100% of people die. 100%. Unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we're going to die. That's the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. The living takes that funeral to heart. That house of mourning. That death in the family affects you. Your friend who died affects you. And you stop and think, life is short. Maybe he lived for the Lord. And you're looking at his funeral and you're thinking about him. And you're saying, that man was godly. He lived for the Lord. I want to be like him. Maybe he didn't live for the Lord. And it was rather obvious. And you learn a lesson from that as well. But those who are left, the funeral's for those who are left. Right? It's for the people who are left to learn a lesson, Solomon says. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Now there's a time for laughter. It's good for the soul. But he's continuing with this idea that to think about death is good for you. You start to look at yourself. You start to look at your life. What have I done with my life? Have I made the most of my time? Have I lived for the Lord? What's going to happen when I die? Where am I going when I die? Well, sorrow... Sadness can lead you to think about those things. And it reminds us of how fleeting life is. It's like a vapor. It's like a mist. It's like the wind. Our life is short. And it drives us to live for the Lord when we think about those things. It should. It should drive a believer to, to live all the more for the Lord. To enjoy everything that He's given us. To think about what happens in our life. The good, the bad, and how we respond to that. And he sums it up in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Now, translation says mind. I don't know why. The, the NASB 
likes to translate heart sometimes as mind. Certainly the, the inner being is the heart and the Old Testament. Who you are is your heart. And part of that is your mind. But it's also the will. It's also the affections. A wise person is in the house of mourning while the heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. A person dies and there are those who go party it up and forget about it. And there are those who take it to heart, who learn from it, who remember that life is short. Interestingly, a house of mourning back then meant in ancient Israel that you mourn the person for seven days. Now, they wouldn't leave the body out for seven days. They would bury it rather quickly. But for seven days, and even today, Jews still do this, you would mourn the dead. So a house of mourning is the family, or maybe even the person who's died, it's their house, and the family comes to that house, and they mourn for seven days. And he says, that's wise. A wise person learns from that funeral, from that time of mourning. But on the other hand, the worldly people, they're not capable of facing death. They don't want to think about it. Just forget about death. Even my loved one, I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to put it out of my mind. They're going to flee from it. They're going to go to the house of pleasure. To the place where there's a party. They just want to feel good again. They want to drink their sorrows away. Take this pill. I feel depressed. I want to feel better. And Solomon's saying, it's right to feel that way. It's right to feel depressed when a loved one dies. Because it reminds you of how short your life is. And how death is coming for you. Now, there's a time, obviously. You don't go on for years and years not living your own life because a loved one died. But he's saying there's a time where there's a good lesson to learn here. And unfortunately, people go off and ignore it and go back to their party lifestyle. Today, foolish people go to a funeral and they think the funeral is all for that person who died. I'm going to bless that person who's dead. I'm going to pay my respects. The funeral's for the people who are still there. Their family, first of all. Then that person's church, if they're part of a church. And then their friends who come. The most attentive audience is at a funeral. Who enjoys the fact that there is a funeral? No one. You do learn from it, don't you? And everyone's listening at a funeral. What's the word of God got to tell me in a time like this? My loved one has just died. What's God's word for me here? See, at a wedding, they just want to hurry up and kiss and get on with the celebration, right? But at a funeral, people are attentive. They're listening. And Solomon understood that the wise will listen and will learn from it. But the foolish, they just want to get out of there as soon as possible, get back to having fun. The wise person goes to a funeral. They realize they need to hear the message, the message that death is coming for them someday. And they need to be ready. They need to be prepared. Moses wrote, a psalm, Psalm 90. And in verse 12 of that psalm, he says, Teach us, Lord, he's talking to the Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. It's a wise thing to think about your life. How much time do I have left? How many years might I have? How old am I already? What have I done in these 44 years? If the Lord gives me another 10 or 20 or 40 what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to bless my family through the gospel, through the word? How am I going to bless my church? How am I going to serve the Lord in my job? So he's saying with this first point, is it's good to consider that death is coming. 
Every death, every funeral is an opportunity to think about our own life and how it will come to an end. God has to tell us this because human thinking, the human mind would not automatically say death is good to think about. But the Bible says death is vital to think about. Not in a grotesque, morbid way, but in a way that you realize death is coming soon. And I need to be ready. The second lesson here, the second answer that he gives to the question, what's good for a man, is that it's good to accept wise correction. So with these sections that we're going to look at on the screen, these main points, he's moving from one thing to the next. So verse 4 talked about the foolish. Now he's going to go into the foolish and the wise. And a wise person will accept correction from others. They will accept a wise correction. That means when somebody tells you something that you don't like, but it's true, it's helpful, then you need to accept it. It's prideful not to. Verse 5, it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. See, the world tells you that rebuke is not good. That you should never go and tell somebody else what they should be doing, that they should stop doing a certain thing. The world says, don't correct others, and you should never want to be corrected yourself. The better way to deal with that is just to seek pleasure, they say. If you've done something wrong, don't look for correction. Just go cover it up with some more pleasure. In fact, there are people who go to psychologists and psychiatrists, and they say, I've lived a certain way, and this is bad. And the person will tell them, look, you just believe that because your parents imposed that or Christianity imposed that on you? What you need to do is go out and do that thing more so it doesn't bother your conscience. That's really going on out there. And Solomon says, you need to accept the rebuke. You need to listen to the rebuke of a wise man. Wise men want to be corrected. Fools want to be entertained. A foolish person just wants to be entertained. Never tell me anything that makes me mad, they say. Don't judge me. Only God can judge me, they say. That's foolish in and of itself. Not realizing the judgment of God and how hard that will be on them. A foolish person turns on their music, their silly music, Solomon says, and they drown out any thoughts of learning from others. Don't tell me what to do. I'm just going to turn up my music. The song of fools. It tells me all about riches and how I can have what I want. I want the kind of music that makes me feel good. Don't tell me how I need to change. That's foolish. Proverbs 15.33, again, these Proverbs are written by Solomon in the book of Proverbs. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs 19.20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Listen to other people when they correct you. And not everybody who tries to correct you is doing it for the right reasons. Not everybody is using biblical truth when they correct you. They're not doing it sometimes in the right way. They have truth, but they're not doing it in the right way. But he's saying, if somebody comes and corrects you with wisdom, listen, don't reject it. Proverbs 19.25, strike a scoffer and the naive may become shrewd. So if a person is punished enough, they might straighten their ways a little bit. But reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain knowledge. He benefits from it when you correct him. 
The scoffer just stops when you're looking and then keeps on living his life. The, the wise person learns from it. They gain in knowledge. In Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. One of the multiple reasons that church is so necessary. You need people to be sharpening you. There's very few places in this world that you can still find where people will correct you. But the church is one of those. And you have to be here in the room for somebody to be able to walk up to you and say, brother, that was sinful. That thing that you posted that you went and did on social media, that was sinful. Or sister in Christ, that's not right the way you're treating your husband. Or teenager, you need to be more respectful to your parents. That's sinful. You can only do that if you're rubbing shoulders with others. And they get to know you and you know them enough to where you realize they love you. That's why they're correcting you. David said in Psalm 141 verse 5, Let the righteous smite me in kindness. He uses the word smite, kill. Let the righteous person kill me in kindness and reprove me. It's the oil upon my head. Do not let my head refuse it. So he realizes we don't like correction. We want to refuse it. But it's like oil poured upon a person's head. That's a good thing, by the way. Not today, but in ancient times. It's a good thing to have oil dumped on your head. Because you smelled back then, and your hair was a mess. And you put some nice smelling hair gel in it. That's a good thing. That means you're blessed to even have such a product back then. And it was a blessing, he's saying. Just like the righteous who corrects in kindness and reproves him. Now he continues, Solomon does, to explain this further in verse 6. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. So they sing songs and they ignore you and they laugh. The foolish person just laughs when you try to correct them. They think it's funny. They go off with their friends and they laugh, sometimes right there in your presence. It's interesting here that the Hebrew word for thorn bush and the one for pot are very similar. So there's sort of a play on words here. In English, we might say, like the noise of nettles under the kettles. Sometimes we have to burn brush in our yard, in our backyard. And we have these rosemary bushes that all died recently with the freeze. So we've just been burning them whenever we can. And as soon as you throw those things on there, they just start crackling and popping and they blaze up for about half a second and they're gone. That's what he's saying about the thorn bushes here. In ancient times, you would burn a thorn bush and it would just crackle and pop and snap and it produced a little heat and then it's gone. It turns into ash. It's not like good hardy wood that you would want to cook with under a pot or warm your house with. And he says, this is the laughing of a fool. It's quick and it's loud and it produces nothing. It's gone. The fool who laughs and won't listen to wisdom whenever they're corrected When a wise person corrects him, he laughs it off. He tells the wise man, quit being so serious about life. Who are you to correct me? Just enjoy life. He cuts up with his friends. He forgets about death and eternity. And his laughing is a cackling sound, isn't it? It's just a cackling like the crackling of the thorn bush. And it's short. Just like the thorn bush burns real quickly and is gone, all of our lives are short. And the life of a fool, he doesn't even realize it. The fool doesn't realize how short his life is. And so Solomon says, this too is Havel. Your translation might say futility or vanity. But Havel is the Hebrew word that we keep seeing come up in every section. Sometimes multiple times. The Hebrew word for a vapor, a mist. 
And different translations handle it differently at times. I just like to say Havel in Hebrew so you can see how much it comes up. It's a vapor. It's a mist. The foolish person's life is so short. Why would they laugh it up? Why would they laugh at correction? Why would they laugh at the Christian who tells them, don't live this way anymore. It's only going to lead to hell. And they just laugh it up and drink it off. Verse 7 he explains even more. For oppression turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. He's talking about wisdom here. He's saying, accept wise correction, and that will make you wise. But the challenge here is we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world, and you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to suffer oppression. And you have to be careful that that persecution and oppression doesn't turn you into a fool. Now, the translation reads a little different in the NASB. It just says it makes a wise man mad. And we don't often use mad anymore in a foolish, crazy, mad sense. We think of mad as angry. So the literal here is it it turns the wise man into a fool. If you let persecution affect you in the wrong way, it will make you do foolish things. Christians who deny the Lord. Maybe at work somebody says, you know, look, you're, you're... being too biblical, you're too much of a serious Christian. And then you change your ways. You don't act like that anymore. You act like them. You act like the world. Now you look just like the rest of the fools. Think of all the fools that laughed at Jesus on the cross, that made fun of him, that mocked him. They thought they were wise, but they actually turned into a fool. A Christian might even deny the truth of Scripture in certain situations just to fit in, just to keep their job, just to be well-liked just to be accepted in their family. They might even take a bribe, he says. A bribe corrupts the heart. They might even take money. Or in more subtle ways. If you do what I want, a family member might say, I'll give you such and such. I'll give you so much money if you live where I want you to live. Bribery. And he says that will corrupt, literally in Hebrew, that will destroy the heart. Accept wise correction and don't be foolish. Don't take bribes. Don't let oppression turn you into something that you're not. Exodus 23, 8, God makes very clear, you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. And again, Solomon says in Proverbs 15, 27, He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. If you profit from something that is sinful, like a bribe or anything, any activity, any job you do that is ungodly, that is not biblical, then your house ultimately will have trouble. God will discipline you. So we've looked at, number one, it's good for us to consider that death is coming. It's good for a man to accept wise correction. And now number three, it's good to be patient during adversity. You got to be patient when things aren't going your way. Sometimes your way isn't even biblical. But let's assume that your way is a way that you're, you're, you're striving for the Lord. You're willing to accept whatever he throws at you in life. And something really adverse happens. Really troubling. Are you going to be patient? Are you going to get angry? Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than the beginning. 
It's much better when it's over and you're looking back, isn't it? Now, I've heard, I've never ran a marathon, but I've heard it's better when you're done with a marathon than when you start it. And I would believe that. It's better to be finished with that marathon than to just be starting it. And he says, patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. It's better to be patient than haughty, than prideful. While we're waiting for things to be finished, while we're waiting for God to do whatever he's doing, we've got to be patient. We must be patient. We want immediate results. We want instant gratification. We get everything immediately. We're mad if it takes Amazon a week to deliver something. It's got to be next day. That's frustrating. We want it now. When we can't have it now, we get upset. Like when things shut down for COVID or when the freeze came through. That was frustrating. And he's saying, be patient. Be patient during adversity. Don't be prideful in your spirit, in your inner being. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. When you're prideful, destruction is coming right behind you. Pride goes right before the following destruction. And a haughty, a prideful spirit before stumbling. You're just going to stumble and fall. It's better to be humble in spirit, Solomon says there in Proverbs. It's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Be patient. Let your soul be patient for what the Lord is doing. And then verse 9, he says, Do not be eager. Do not be hasty is the literal translation. Don't be in such a rush to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. You see, a person that's impatient, they try to speed things up. Things aren't going fast enough the way I want them to. And so they speed things up and they get angry. And he says, that's foolish. That's what foolish people do. Don't be like that. That's a person that's quick to get angry. And they carry their anger from one situation in life to the next. The kids make you mad, then you take it out on your spouse. Your spouse makes you mad, you take it out on your boss or your person below you at work or your co-workers, and so on. Be patient. God's doing something here. Don't be foolish. Verse 10, here's a foolish thing that people say when they're not patient. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Solomon's already addressed the dreamer here. He's already addressed in previous chapters the person who's always looking at the future and they're not concerned enough about the present. And they're just sitting around waiting and dreaming. Now he's addressing the person who looks back to the past. Well, it was so much better in those good old days when our government and our economy was great, when my family was happy and we had all these wonderful things. None of us were sick. Nobody had cancer. Good old days. And he says, that's foolish. That's a foolish way to think. It's not that we should never remember things, but when we dwell on that, when we almost complain to God about it, that things aren't good like they used to be, God, what have you done? What are you doing, Lord? I want to go back to the good old days. Well, there's many reasons why that's foolish. First of all, there's nothing new under the sun. So the good old days weren't as good as you thought they were. Your memory's bad. There was sin in the good old days, the same kind of sin that you still do. 
there was suffering in the good old days. Maybe you weren't as old as you are now, but other people were suffering that you loved. There was death then, there's death now. There was corruption then, there's corruption now. There were bad political leaders then, there's bad political leaders now. Maybe in a sense the world, in our country anyway, had a, a time when they acknowledged outwardly Scripture better. But it's gone in cycles throughout history. We can't keep looking back to the good old days. And that's another reason it's foolish, because by focusing on the past, we're not living in the present. God wants you to focus on the now and what you need to be doing now to grow in Christ-likeness, what you need to be doing now in your work, in your family, in your church. Not the good old days, before COVID came, before all these things happened in the world. What about now? What am I supposed to do now? Solomon's a realist. And if you're always living in the past, you're just not focusing at all on the present. Another reason it's foolish is that it keeps you from enjoying the present. You're always thinking about how much you enjoyed the past, and you can't even enjoy and see all the good things that God has given you now. What am I thankful for today? What am I blessed by now that I didn't have back then? How much wisdom have I gained in that time? I don't want to go back to when I made all those stupid mistakes in life. And even the present affliction that you might be going through, he's saying it's good compared to the blessings in the past. Because as he's going to tell us later, God has brought that affliction. If you're always in prosperity all the time, you're going to be more tempted to sin. You're going to be more tempted to deny God in your actions. That's why a poet wrote in 1621, Robert Burton, he said, If adversity hath killed his thousands, prosperity hath killed his ten thousands. Therefore, adversity is to be preferred. Let's be patient during adversity. God is doing something. God will work it out. Don't get angry. Don't look back and say, you know, things were better back then. Number four, it's good to have wisdom with wealth. It's good to have wisdom with wealth. Now, he's talked about wealth quite a bit in Ecclesiastes. Wealth can be a big danger. It can be an idol. People can put their trust in wealth and have nothing in life to show for it. They have nothing when they die. They don't go to heaven because they trusted in wealth. They don't have friends. They don't have family because it was all about making money and being a workaholic. But if you do have wealth, if God has blessed you with money, it's better to have wisdom along with that. Verse 11, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. Those who see the sun, those who live here on earth. Some translations say wisdom is an inheritance, but that's not the literal Hebrew here is wisdom along with an inheritance. The idea is you would get an inheritance, and if you don't have wisdom, that's a bad thing. If you do have wisdom, he's saying that's a blessing. That's a blessing. It's better to have wisdom and money than just money by itself. If you have money and no wisdom, you're just going to waste it. Or if you don't spend it all, it's going to waste you. It's going to consume you. You have no wisdom. You live like a fool. You spend it on your pleasures. And then you find out, like he's already taught us in Ecclesiastes, you never have enough. You never get what you want. You're never satisfied. But with wisdom, you know some of the things that he's taught here. You read the Bible if you have wisdom. You learn about things. You learn about money, how to spend it wisely. We all know people who've had money and spent it very unwisely. Some of us are in the room today. But we know the person who's spent so much just for themselves that it's harmed them in the long run. 
It's made them more hard of heart. It's made them less likely to want to even come to church and listen to the Bible being preached. Money has hurt them because they had no wisdom. And he's saying, look, it's okay to have money if God has given it to you. If you've got it rightly, you didn't steal it or take it illicitly from somebody. But have some wisdom along with it. That's an advantage in life. There's not many advantages in life that he gives us in Ecclesiastes. saying this is one of them. To have wisdom. It's good to have wisdom to navigate through life. To keep us from making foolish decisions. People who have money just throw it away sometimes. Into foolish investments. Foolish businesses. Doesn't mean anything to them. They got plenty. They just throw it around. He explains more in verse 12, for wisdom is protection. Literally the word shade. Wisdom is a shade. Money is a shade. And what he's saying here is that like a shade that that protects us from the sun, wisdom protects us from doing stupid, foolish, sinful things. And money protects us from being hungry, from begging, from all the things that a person might have to do. Or suffer because they have no money. But, he says, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. You have both. You're protected. Yes, he says, but wisdom is more important than money. If you had to choose, choose wisdom in other words. It will preserve your life. You think money will. You think I've got to have all this money to make it to the end of my life. God will take care of you. If you're one of his children, pray for wisdom. Solomon didn't pray in the beginning of his life. He didn't pray for money. He prayed for wisdom. Then he got money as a blessing. Doesn't always work like that for everybody. So don't think that's the prosperity gospel. Doesn't work like that. But if you pray for wisdom, God will grant it. Read the book of James. God will grant it in his time. And he may give you wealth to test you and see if you're going to use that wisdom. Wisdom, knowledge, Solomon says, is the better of the two. Money can vanish. You have wisdom, it stays with you. Money can vanish. It can be gone. You can lose it all. A lot of businesses going out right now. They got a little government help through the last year. Now that money's ran out. We're just seeing closed businesses everywhere. Money can run out very quickly. But wisdom lasts. The fifth one, the last thing that Solomon tells us here, is probably the biggest of the five. But it's also the one that we've been looking at and keep coming back to. It's the one that never quite goes away. It is good to trust in God's sovereignty. We talk a lot about God's sovereignty here because it's in the Bible. It comes up over and over in every chapter of Ecclesiastes. It comes up in our Wednesday night Bible study through Philippians. It comes up now as we're looking at the Peacemaker book. There was a whole chapter on God's sovereignty in that book. We've got to trust in God's sovereignty. Yes, trust in God, but a lot of people say they trust in God And then when God does something and they realize that was God, they don't like it. They're angry about it. Or they think God's not in control. How could you let this happen, God? God didn't just let it happen. He brought it about. That's what Solomon's going to say. Look at verse 13. Consider, literally the work is see. Stop and look around at the work of God. Consider what God's doing. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? Now this really challenges people's theology. But it's not surprising if you've been with us through Ecclesiastes. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 15. 
Now, Solomon doesn't mention God here, but it's pretty clear if you take the context of the whole book. And this is Solomon's discussion about all the things he tried in life. And he said, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You don't have the ability to straighten out everything that's crooked in the world. And you don't even have the ability to know what's missing from the puzzle. You don't even have all the pieces. You only see this slice, this small little picture. That's your life. Wisdom is good. But stop and think. God's wisdom is better. You see how he's just going from one of these to the next. He's been talking about wisdom. But a person can think, you know, I'm really wise. I'm wise enough to run the universe and tell God what's best for me and my family and my life. And he's talking about God's sovereignty here. It's not something everyone likes to hear about. But here it is in Scripture. Wisdom is great, but God's wisdom is infinitely, sovereignly greater. Your wisdom can only do so much. But God set up the world the way that it is. God has done what he's done for a reason. And he didn't ask your advice. He didn't ask your opinion. He didn't ask you to fix what's been broken since the fall. God has a plan to fix all that. He told us his plan. He didn't even have to tell us his plan. He did that in the Bible. But for a lot of people, that's not good enough. God knows the secret of what is going to happen. And he knows why things come about the way that they do. And we're just to trust in that. We're to trust in God. And we're to trust that he is doing things for his purposes and they're good. Because the Bible tells us that. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. We're talking about what's good for man. What's good for man is to put our trust in God because he will take care of things his way and he's good and it will be good for us if we're his children. And verse 14 gets even more challenging to our theology here. And the day of prosperity, be happy. That's easy, right? We can all do that. But here's the trick. But in the day of adversity, consider. When things are hard, when your life is hard, when you get that diagnosis, when you have that thing happen in your family, when one of your children commits this great sin, when things don't go the way that you think they should, stop and consider. Again, look around. He uses this word a lot in Ecclesiastes. Stop and look around. Consider. God has made the one as well as the other. We love the good times. Happy, joy, fun. What about the bad times? Now, you're not supposed to love bad times and you ask for them and you pray for them. That's not what he's saying. The Bible never says that. But he's saying, realize that God has brought both for a reason. Enjoy the good times that God gives. And in the bad times, learn from it. Learn the lesson that the adversity is teaching you. If you've overspent and gone into debt and you can't pay your bills, learn that lesson that you shouldn't have done it in the first place and don't do it again. If you sinned against somebody and that's caused a relationship split, learn the lesson from that. Make amends as best you can, but the most important thing is you don't do it again and again and again. God brings adversity. He brings the bad times. People say God would never do that. He wants us to be happy, wealthy, and healthy. Is that what happened to Jesus and his earthly ministry? He died pretty 
short, didn't he? 33, 30-something years. The apostles, they had a happy, healthy, wealthy ministry, right? Beaten, whipped, thrown overboard, thrown in jail. Some were crucified early. Even John, who lived a long life, was imprisoned on an island. How many times was he beaten throughout his life? No, this verse is telling you that God brings the good and the bad. And you need to accept that and trust in him. The Bible, the whole Bible says that. Job 2.10, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Remember Job's wife? She's like these people who object to God's sovereignty. Just curse God and die. And he says, how can we just accept the good from God and not accept the adversity that he brings? Or James 1.2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Not joy in the sense that you're asking God, please send me a trial, but joy in the sense that now that the trial's here, I know that God's doing something in my life. I know that God's working here. He's producing endurance, James says, perseverance. He's helping me. Both prosperity and adversity are appointed by the all-sovereign God. He is good. He is just in everything he does. But look how Solomon finishes off this section. One of the reasons that God brings good and bad is so that Man will not discover, literally find, anything that will be after him. We don't know what the future holds. We can't get up this morning and know 100% with certainty what's going to happen today. Only God knows that. And God's changing things, so we'll learn the lesson to trust in him. Because if we knew what was going to happen and we were certain all the time, we would think we're little gods. I know what's going to happen with my life today, and I'll do such and such and such and such. And God says, it doesn't work like that. God brings the good and the bad, and you don't know what's coming today. That's not the point. You're not God. Trust in Him. God knows what's good for mankind. He knows what's good for us. So put your faith in Him. Otherwise, if you don't have faith in God, if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, His Son, you really don't know what's coming in this life, and you certainly don't know what's coming in the next. You don't know how serious, how bad, it's going to be. If you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, these might sound good. Good advice, pastor. Sounds great. You can't even do these things without Christ. You can't even do these things. You're just going to go on with life, being foolish, listening to the music of fools, laughing like fools, living a life of pleasure. And then it's going to come to an end because life is short. And then what? There's no partying in hell. I know the songs say that. It's another one of those foolish songs, right? There's a couple of them. Big party in hell. All my friends will be there. That's a bad thing. How about putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was raised from the dead on the third day, the one who died on the cross for sinners, so we can have what's good for us now and what's good for us in eternity. That's what you want to believe. That's what you want to accept. And then turn around and tell your foolish friends about that. Let's pray that God would help us to understand what's good for us and that we would trust in Him. Lord, we do indeed um, know that you, you alone know what's best for each one of us in this room. We're believers here today. We have some idea of what's good for us. We can read the Scriptures and learn about it. But ultimately, we trust you. If your Word says it, then it will happen. And it says you know what's best. So we put all of our trust in you through the sacrifice of your son Jesus 
We ask in his name that you would indeed teach us, help us to learn that you know best. And for those here today that aren't saved, they haven't been regenerated, they haven't been born again, pray that you would make that happen, that somebody here today would hear this message and realize that they're foolish, that they don't understand that Christ has died and that they now heard it. I pray that they would believe. I pray that they would believe in the Lord Jesus because he is our Lord. He is our Savior. Lord, bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.